1: Thank you for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Humanizing the Narrative Podcast. I'm Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded in the summer of 2020 and features host Patty Murphy and American Baseball Executive Sandy Alderson, General Manager of the New York Mets at the time. Sandy currently serves as the President of the New York Mets and has been a front office executive in Major League Baseball for 40 years. Under his leadership, Major League Baseball teams have won six division titles, three American League pennants, one National League pennant, and a World Series championship. Sandy has held executive leadership roles with the Oakland Athletics, San Diego Padres, and New York Mets. Under his leadership as general manager, the Oakland Athletics played in three consecutive World Series from 1998 to 1990 and won the 1989 World Series. Sandy guided the 2015 New York Mets to a National League pennant and the World Series. He's also served as an executive for Major League Baseball on two separate occasions. Sandy was the principal architect of Moneyball, a the Oakland Athletics organization. Sandy reformed the way the Athletics did business in virtually every regard. He revolutionized the ways in which the club scouted and identified talent, used analytics, approached the mental game, and conditioned their athletes. Sandy's approach to fielding a competitive team while at the helm of the Athletics was unconventional. Decades later, those once progressive tenants are now part of the game's orthodoxy in virtually every organization in professional baseball. Sandy has been a trusted source of insight and encouragement in shaping LUF's approach to systematically optimizing human performance in the fire service and ultra-competitive and or lethal endeavors. LUF recently launched the LUF Human Performance Team of Teams, a collaborative network of human performance leaders from around North America. Though in its infancy, the LUF Team of Teams network will consist of several networked functional teams dedicated to exploring and advancing specific pillars of human performance. Each of the teams are named in honor of a human performance pioneer, and we thought it would be fitting to name the program manager team, Team Alderson, in honor of Sandy's immense contributions. Leadership and service are in Sandy Alderson's bloodline. His father was a seasoned Army Air Corps and Air Force pilot who flew in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Sandy graduated from Dartmouth at the height of the Vietnam War. He did an unpopular thing, particularly as an elite graduate. He took a commission in the United States Marine Corps. Second Lieutenant Alderson soon found himself in Vietnam as a platoon leader of U.S. Marine infantrymen. Sandy was commended for his combat leadership in Vietnam with a Bronze Star with a Valor Device. After returning home from Vietnam, Sandy received orders to the Marine Corps' prestigious 8th and I Barracks in Washington, D.C., a billet customarily reserved for officers destined for great responsibility in the Marine Corps. Though Sandy unquestionably had a bright future in the Marine Corps, he opted to depart the service and attend law school at Harvard. In professional baseball circles, Sandy is revered as a maverick for his baseball intellect. But more importantly, he's respected and admired for his character and moral compass. Sandy's been recognized in recent months by the New York Friends of Vietnam Veterans Plaza and the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation for his leadership and civic virtue. The same character and conviction that was central to Sandy's leadership style as a leader of Marines in combat Have been at the core of how he's conducted himself in business and professional baseball for the past four decades. Sandy's character is perhaps most evident in what the organizations under his charge do not just on the field, but also off the field. Under Sandy's leadership, the New York Mets have consistently and quietly gone above and beyond in supporting our nation's veterans, Gold Star families, and the families of fallen first responders. Not because it is favorable for the brand, but because it is the right thing to do.
0: host, Patty Murphy, and I'm excited to speak to our guest today about service, performance, and organizational reform. Mr. Alderson, thank you for joining me today.
2: Very happy to be with you, Patty.
0: Before we get to your MLB career, if you don't mind, I'd like to discuss your early life. Your father was an aviator in the US Army Air Corps and Air Force and flew combat missions in World War II the Korean War, and Vietnam. How did your father's service impact and or influence you as a young man?
2: Well, I think it uh, influenced me in at at least two important ways. First of all, growing up in a service environment, I was naturally taken by the importance of military service. Tremendous amount of respect for my father and what he did as a young kid. I certainly wanted to be a, a pilot myself. But I think just the overall sense of duty and honor and service uh, was probably something that I took from his life. The second thing is just as a practical matter, uh, as part of a military family, one moves from place to place periodically. And so that is is a very different upbringing than someone who is rooted in one place over a long period of time, you know, through their adolescence into adulthood being a military brat means not just moving but adapting mm-hmm. um, i lost a friend from my uh, elementary school days the other the other day and was reflecting on the fact that um a, a, as a part of a military family uh everything is transient so mm-hmm. in your your later life you're looking for more more continuity and stability but it does leave you with the ability to adapt. And if you enjoy doing different things like I do, then it makes uh, life a little bit easier.
0: I'm sorry to hear about your loss. And I think that your answer will resonate with a lot of our listeners. In the summer of 1967, you had just finished your sophomore year at Dartmouth and traveled to Vietnam as a journalist. And I'm using air quotes around the word journalist. Can you tell us more about that trip?
2: Yeah. So at that time, uh, my my, uh, family was living in the Philippines uh, on an Air Force base uh, there that no longer exists, Clark Air Base. And so early in that summer, I flew to the Philippines uh, for part of the summer to rejoin my family and had the idea of visiting my father, who was actually flying in Vietnam at the time. My family was in the Philippines, but he was on uh, assignment in uh, Vietnam and because the philippines is relatively close i thought well maybe i can go visit him and the only way to get into the country was to get a visa as a journalist and uh i was able to do that and flew from the philippines to hong kong and into uh what was called saigon at the time mm-hmm. and um unfortunately wasn't accredited by the army which meant i didn't have access to most military facilities including Helicopter transportation, but I did manage to get to my father's base, which was a few hundred miles from Saigon, and uh, I stayed with him for about a week. Uh, Actually, flew with him once um, on a training mission, which was highly, (laughs) highly unusual uh, and probably illegal. Uh, And then I came back to the Philippines, but because I wasn't accredited in '67, I decided, you know, I'm going to go do this. Again, so in '68, I went back to Vietnam as as a journalist. My father wasn't there at the time, but uh, I spent much longer there—about a month—traveling uh, around the country and doing what journalists did, um, mm-hmm. you know, go, going out in the field with Marines or flying on uh, air missions and so forth. Um, you know, I, I have to admit that you know it was it was easy to be there for a month and not 13 months. But um, I did learn a lot, and uh, it it was quite quite an experience for somebody who was 18, 19.
0: Wow. You graduated from Dartmouth in 1968 and did somewhat of an unpopular or certainly an uncommon thing at the time as an Ivy League graduate. You commissioned as Marine Second Lieutenant at arguably the height of the Vietnam War. What was your thought process then?
2: Well, when I came out of high school in 1965, I actually wanted to go to the Air Force Academy and didn't pass the eye test and ended up in Naval ROTC at Dartmouth. So I made the decision to go into the military, at least for a period of time, before my freshman year of college and really before the Vietnam War had become as central to world events as it became by 67, 68. In 67, just after I'd come back from from the Philippines and Vietnam as this putative journalist. I did decide to go in the Marine Corps. I decided on the Marines over the Navy. And, you know, at that time I was again motivated by, you know, my father's service, what, what I had observed uh overseas, a sense, perhaps misguided in, in retrospect, that, you know, this was the right thing to do. So I was actually quite gung ho. It was just unpopular on campus. Um were at protests when we uh, did our RTC drills. When mm-hmm. I was commissioned, um, we had state troopers uh, surrounding the commissioning ceremony for fear of demonstrators and protesters. But, you know, to some extent, it was a them versus us kind of attitude. And, and from my standpoint, I was very happy with the choices that I made and I was looking forward to serving the country.
0: So on that note, what are some of the leadership or human performance principles that you adopted as a Marine infantry officer in combat that you continue to value?
2: Well, first of all, Marine training is uh, sort of all-encompassing. One misconception, I think, about institutions like the Marine Corps is that they train uh, individuals to be... Automatons, you know, those that just follow orders, those that uh, uh, adhere to absolute uh, organizational principles and discipline, and really nothing could be further from the truth. I think that the what the Marine Corps does is it imbues one with a variety of pretty important principles, and there's no question that loyalty, integrity, courage physical courage, moral courage, all of those things, you know, that that build character in a broader sense than just a good marine officer or enlisted. You know, those things do stay with you, but what they do also do is they provide a framework within which an institution like the Marine Corps promotes initiative, risk-taking, decision-making with less than full information. Mm-hmm. So within a framework that one would think is pretty rigid. Within that framework, there's there's an encouragement to try new things and take the initiative. And that's why the Marine Corps is successful, not because there are officers in charge of platoons, but because there are squad leaders in charge of squads and fire team leaders in charge of fire teams. So those are the kinds of things that one takes from, you know, service as a Marine. The other thing is there's this old adage, uh, once a Marine, always a Marine. And
0: yep. Of course,
2: mm-hmm. it, it's true in some sense and not in others. You know, we we don't have to deploy as, as, as quote, former Marines. We don't have to deploy. We don't have uh, separation from our families. We're not subject to dangerous circumstances. But in another sense, um, we do remain Marines because of all of those qualities that sort of been inculcated in us and stay with us. and and also the sense of responsibility to the Marine Corps. Anytime my name comes up, it's always, you know, there's always some reference to my Marine Corps days. And so that there's a certain responsibility that comes with that to to not embarrass and hopefully promote the Marine Corps in a positive way. So mm-hmm. I've, ever since I got out, I I've, I've felt a responsibility to live up to the fact that i was a marine not that i am currently but uh, am subject to all of those requirements but that i was and anything i do can re- could reflect poorly or potentially positively on the marine corps and i think that's one of the things it leaves you with is a sense of that responsibility
0: thank you very much for that insight and i think that's the perfect point to segue into your mlb career So, you were perhaps the first general manager in Major League Baseball to assume a critical leadership role as an outsider to the game. At the time that you assumed duties as the general manager of the Oakland Athletics in 1983, you were a former U.S. Marine officer and had practiced law, but you were far from an institutional baseball guy. You hadn't coached, played, or scouted professionally. What was the impetus for you to become the general manager, particularly since you were an unlikely candidate at the time?
2: Well, it was strictly fortuitous. Um, The family that purchased the Oakland A's in 1980, 1981 from Charlie Finley was a local San Francisco family where I was practicing law at the time. And one of the lawyers in my firm was the son-in-law of the principal owner of the A's. And when they bought the team, I started doing legal work for them. And about a year later, after doing some salary arbitration cases and things, I went over to the A's as a full-time employee. My thinking at the time was, why not? I can always be a lawyer. And so when I went to the A's, I was general counsel. I did a variety of other things. But in the meantime, the manager and general manager, who at that time was Billy Martin, a sort of legendary baseball figure more closely associated with the New York Yankees was there and left under difficult circumstances was fired after the 1982 season Um, because all of us who were associated with the A's at that time had very little experience in the game. The owner basically looked at me and said, look, uh, I'm going to make you the general manager, not because I had any great experience in the game, but I think he, he trusted my judgment and maybe character, and one of the things uh you know we weren't related, but the c e o of the of the team at the time, who was the son in law of the owner, was also a Dartmouth graduate and also a former marine, ten years my senior but so I think I got the job not based on my my baseball acumen but rather on sort of qualities that maybe he assumed. I had on the basis of you know our, our shared history.
0: I'm wondering what were the advantages or disadvantages of being an industry outsider.
2: Uh, very good question. And I think that um, the the advantage I had was that I was not burdened by con- conventional wisdom. Mm. When I got involved in as the general manager, for example, uh, one of the one of the critical roles of a general manager is making player evaluations and decisions about uh, acquiring players or making trades. If you haven't any experience in the game as a scout or in player development, or even as a player, then you can't really evaluate those situations on the basis of experience or traditional scouting methodology. I just hadn't been exposed to that. And so it wasn't available to me. About that time, analytics became uh, a topic of of uh discussion but only in very esoteric kind of circles it wasn't it you know it wasn't adopted in baseball by any means but i i was exposed to it uh, i heard a radio program uh, i started reading a couple of things and the approach that some of these individuals uh one in one in particular a guy named bill james the approach he was taking seemed totally rational and also to some extent mathematically sound, provable almost. In those days, analytics was more conceptual than it is today because there wasn't nearly as much data available to analyze as there is today. But the fact that I was an outsider wasn't burdened by a lot of experience. Conventional wisdom uh, left me wide open to other ideas and um, a willingness to try them in the absence of any other sort of fallback. So being an outsider at that time was absolutely critical to, I think, whatever success we actually had.
0: I really appreciate that response. You know, when we look around professional sport today, especially Major League Baseball, we see many front office executives who fit a mold strikingly similar to yours, Ivy League educations, analytical and intellectual types who are relatively young, no playing or coaching experience, and often much younger than the on-field managers under their charge. Why do you think that has become an industry standard of sorts?
2: I think the reason that it's become an industry standard is because of the importance of data mm-hmm. and analytics and sort of decision science as it relates to baseball versus the value of experience. And I, the, the reason I say that is that if you think about experience, which is sort of a traditional uh, form of of education and development, mm-hmm. it's essentially a small sample. And sample size is really important uh, when you talk about decision making and, and uh, analysis. Experience is, watching baseball games as as an individual, maybe watching hundreds of games, but really experiencing only those things that are directly, uh, in which you are directly involved. Data provides and and data analysis, but, but data itself is a larger sample, a huge sample, and is a way of taking a lot of experiences and bringing them, aggregating them, and then making decisions based on not just the the experience of one individual, but the experience of hundreds or thousands of individuals. And so baseball has lent itself to data mining, analysis, and so forth. And as a result, more and more people who are adept at using information, aware of you know decision, science, and therefore probabilities and efficiencies uh, have become more and more important in the game. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I think that the goal of efficiency and highest probability in baseball has actually taken a lot of the fun out of the game and a lot of Mm -hmm. of the unpredictability out of the game and has made it, as it's practiced by 30 teams, pretty homogeneous. And I think that's a problem because baseball is entertainment and Mm -hmm. entertainment needs to be somewhat unpredictable. Even scripted programs uh, have an element of surprise in them. Uh, reality TV is, is, all about surprises. And the question is whether baseball is becoming more of a sp- scripted form of entertainment or a spontaneous one based on, you know, reality. So today, unfortunately, we have lots of people who are focused on efficiency and probability and not on entertainment. And, um, I think it's actually gone too far. The ideal person to run a baseball team, I think, is a person who has the intellectual capacity to handle data, handle various systems and theories and concepts, but also one who has experience in the game, either as a scout or a player. Yeah, that's the ideal person. So the ideal person to me is not an Ivy League graduate with curiosity, but a former minor league player or ma- or major league player with the same curiosity and the mm-hmm. same, you know, mental capacity and orientation to do all the work that's necessary. Just because you're a great player doesn't make, make you a great decision maker. But it's tough to be a great decision maker when you don't have some identity with the people you're involving, some sense of empathy or shared experience. That's one of the things I loved about the Marine Corps was, you know, the shared experience, whether mm-hmm. you're a lieutenant or Major or general or a corporal or a private. Um, everyone has a responsibility and everybody is functioning under the same basic principles, but we're all in it together. Anyway, so I, I think that I think you're right. I think what we have today is kind of a third or fourth generation of what I represented 40 mm-hmm. years ago, but I'm not sure we're we're at a good place right now in terms of uh, how decisions are made and and what the game looks like from an entertainment standpoint as a result.
0: I have to say, I don't think I could have predicted that answer. So that's first. (laughs) And I do want to spend some more time talking to you about human performance in sport and really the human performance reform that you brought to Major League Baseball. But before that, I'd I'd love to spend a little time exploring your tenure in Oakland as the general manager and then president that ranged from the 1983 to 1997 seasons, particularly since so much of your work and reform during those years shaped the events that were documented by Michael Lewis and his book, Moneyball, and then popularized in the movie. So first, I'd love for you to tell us more about two moments in baseball history that fans likely remember even 30-plus years later. The 1980 World Series produced perhaps one of the greatest moments in World Series history in the form of Dodgers' Kirk Gibson homering off Hall of Fame closer Dennis Eckersley, though maybe not one of your favorite baseball moments. What do you remember <laughs> about Kirk Gibson's home run? How did it feel, and were you surprised?
2: Well, I didn't feel good, and I was surprised and uh, mildly shocked. Um, So, leading up to that moment, uh, you know, Dennis Eckersley was on the mound. We had a uh, one-run lead, bottom of the ninth inning, the first game of the World Series, which is really a critical game. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you win the first one, particularly on the road, it's a very important indicator of of, uh maybe winning or losing the rest of the series before Gibson came to the plate another player came up with two outs and his name was Mike Davis he had played for Oakland the year before had had a very poor year but ended up uh walking now Dennis Eckersley never walked anybody in that that year uh that was really um concerning and not that you know I felt like some premonition but at the same time Eckersley never walked anybody uh, Gibson came out of the dugout. You know, wasn't able to play because of an injury. Kind of shuffled to the plate, got a 3-2 pitch, and hit it out. And I was sitting in the uh, first row of seats behind the Oakland dugout, so on the first base side. That ball went into the right field seats, and it was, mm-hmm. um, you know, an absolute shock. The Pandemonium in the in the Dodger Stadium you know, disbelief on my part. My son, my seven-year-old son was sitting in my lap at the time. So anyway, you know, after the game, Dennis was really terrific, you know, talked to the press. I think he was in shock himself. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was a young team. I was a young executive and I don't think we felt that it was, you know, the death knell for our chances, but I do think it had a, had a psychological impact. And then of course, the following Day we had to face Oral Hershiser, who was by far the best pitcher in baseball that year, and we lost that game and were suddenly down two nothing. So it was it was quite a moment. It would have been great if we'd had that moment and then gone on and won the World Series. Then we we could have had our cake mm-hmm. and eat it too. It had been part of a historical moment, but but one nonetheless. But it didn't work out that way.
0: Well, thank you for revisiting that with me. And these are moments that fans are very familiar with, but sometimes hearing that firsthand account brings a whole new uh, perspective to those scenes. So thank you for that. And the second moment I want to revisit is game three of the 1989 World Series between the San Francisco Giants and your Oakland A's was scheduled to get underway on the evening of October 17, 1989. And at 5.04 local time, an earthquake occurred, registering 6.9, causing 67 deaths and billions of dollars of damage to infrastructure what do you remember about those minutes at Candlestick Park in San Francisco and the days that followed, particularly from a leadership perspective?
2: Well, again, a surprising, if not shocking moment. But at the time that the earthquake started, I was in a a suite down the left field line in Candlestick Park with my wife and uh, son. And when it started, I actually thought that there was just some commotion in the upper deck. The box we were in was kind of hanging off the uh, upper deck. Uh, then when it continued on, I realized it was probably an earthquake and I got everybody in the door frame, which was really all we could do. It's one of the things they tell you to consider when you're in an earthquake, get, get in the frame of a the door. There's a little more reinforcement there. And you know, the interesting thing about an earthquake, we lived in San Francisco for 20 years or so and, um, when an earthquake hits, this wasn't the only earthquake I, I had ever experienced, but when you, when you, expe- you experience an earthquake, it's usually in a different place each time. So if you're in a building, you have one, you you have one sensation. If you're in a stadium, you have a different sensation. If you're in your car, it's completely different. And so it's not as if you say, oh yeah, this is an earthquake. Here it comes. And it's kind of a similar experience. They're, they're all very different. Mm-hmm. And so, In the immediate aftermath and looking around, there was no apparent damage. And so I just thought it was, you know, a trembler and uh, the lights had gone out, but I figured the lights, you know, they'd get the lights back on and we'd continue to play. Within a few minutes, there were television pictures of the damage to the Oakland Bay Bridge and the freeway in Oakland and some of the places in the Marina District in San Francisco. And so within a few minutes, we realized, That things were not good and that the game would probably be delayed. First reaction from a leadership standpoint was, you know, to make sure everybody was safe. And so we we got players and families actually on the playing surface out in the middle of the ballpark. And then several hours later we're able to get buses back to Oakland. I mean, one of the questions we had was what other bridges are damaged? And is it safe actually to go? anywhere in the Bay Area, if you have to use a bridge or some other, uh, structure of that type. Uh, but anyway, we got everybody uh, home and then it was a matter of waiting to decide whether to resume the series or not. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was important to address all of the local issues, the, the injuries, the deaths that were incurred, the damage that was inflicted on, um, infrastructure and so forth. I mean, it was a period of mourning mm-hmm. that was uh, certainly appropriate. At some point, it became clear that MLB was just waiting for the right time to reopen the series. And so, you know, what was difficult for us was recognizing that we, we needed to honor the losses that had been experienced, uh, particularly in the East Bay where most of, I think, the deaths occurred. Near Oakland, but also a responsibility to the community and to our fans to do what we could if the game, if the games were going to resume, to actually go win the World Series because they would remember that for as long as they would remember the earthquake. And so, at some point, we we just decided, look, that was our important, that was our mission. I felt we had appropriately waited a period of time, but now it was it was important for us to prepare for a resumption of the World Series. So we. We flew to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, working out there and ended up playing an exhibition game against our instructional league team and flew back and of course won the next two games. The Giants didn't do any of that. So, you know, from a leadership standpoint, we had to make a decision of, about what was important, what was appropriate, short-term, as well as long-term. And, you know, that responsibility was to the community, but in two divergent aspects a period of mourning and honoring what sacrifices that had been made and losses that had been incurred. But on the other hand, responsibility to do as well as we could as the World Series resumed. And so we took a little criticism from the commissioner at the time, but Mm -hmm. I didn't really care. Again, at that point in time, we needed to go figure out a way to win. And um, fortunately, we were able to do that.
0: Given that our listening audience is made up of many first responders, it's Interesting to hear you humanize that leadership response at an organizational level to um, such an event.
2: The first responders, of course, were hugely important. And um, you know, part of our responsibility in the community was to ensure that we weren't interfering with their work, number one, supporting their work, number two, and then ultimately honoring their work, number three. So that that was really a judgment call based on the passage of time and, and what we projected would be important.
0: Moving to reform and human performance in Major League Baseball. We were touching on it earlier, but I want to dive in now. So for our listeners who maybe don't know, the list of human performance reforms that you brought to the Oakland Athletics and Professional Baseball include weight rooms and clubhouses, in-season strength and conditioning programs, the use of computers in collecting and organizing data, the reliance on predictive and probabilistic performance statistics, aka sabermetrics, and the employment of mental conditioning coaches. I have to ask, is there one reform or adaptation in particular that received a considerable amount of resistance, but you tried it anyway, and its effectiveness silenced the critics?
2: Yeah, I think that uh the one that suffered the most resistance was the uh the use of mental conditioning mm. uh coaches. At that time, you know, baseball was a very traditional sport and organizational uh, ideas were fairly conservative. And when you bring in a mental skills coach who isn't necessarily a trained baseball coach, not trained in the you know the physical skills involved in playing the game, but rather somebody who is bringing sort of mental components. What that means is that the mental skills coach actually has actual ability across the board to all of the different coaches, whether a pitching coach, a hitting coach, outfield defense coach, catching whatever. His work would apply across the board, and what that means is that there's there can be in in the traditional sense, some incursion into those areas on the part of the mental skills coach, that sometimes the more traditional coaches with traditional, you know, categories of responsibility, they don't appreciate. They don't want some guy coming in and talking to their pitchers or they don't Mm -hmm. want somebody coming in talking to their hitters. And so from that standpoint, there was resistance and the resistance was a function of the leadership. If the leader of the player development organization, the minor league organization was sympathetic to the mental skills coach and supported the mental skills coach, then things went smoothly. If on the other hand, say a major league manager or a major league coach objected, it got a little more complicated. And so I still think with respect to mental skills training, there is resistance in baseball today, not across the board because Mm -hmm. uh, mental skills training has become Fairly routine with most organizations, but there are still pockets of resistance that are predicated on longer-held, more traditional attitudes about coaching and uh, territory, and you know the the efficacy of some of these uh, health skills.
0: You know, I should mention that I met you in 2016 at the FDNY as. The department was rolling out its mental performance initiative, and I was fortunate to sit down with you and interview you for a film I put together on that. And one particular reform that I have heard you speak to the FDNY's senior leadership about involves the work of Harvey Dorfman and his book, The Mental Game of Baseball. I should also note that anyone who has listened to LUF founder Jason Bresler speak about mental performance has likely heard him reflect on the book's significance to him and should also mention that former Yankee slugger Mark Teixeira told Freakonomics host Stephen Dubner that he credited his work with Harvey for a great deal of his success. So on this note, who was Harvey Dorfman and how did he wind up working with the Oakland Athletics Organization?
2: Well, Harvey was, um, this was now in the mid-1980s, Harvey was a a journalist, sort of a stringer, uh, writer, and also had some training in psychology. He was living in Vermont at the time, and um, we happened to have a minor league team in Vermont. And at some point, Harvey befriended the manager there and uh, began talking to the manager and discussing some of these concepts. And the manager talked to the head of our player development, a guy named Carl Mm Keel. Carl Keel then uh, mentioned him to me. And uh, we were all intrigued by what Harvey might be able to bring to some of your young players. At the time, I viewed Harvey like a guidance counselor uh in a in a high school keeping in mind that in player development in baseball you know we often have young kids 18 19 20 21 years old and so harvey more through his personality than actually his professional qualifications was a tremendous um motivator but also counselor for our players as as well as for our coaches you know mental skills training is not all that complicated There are, you know, a handful of techniques that people use, self-talk, establishing routines, breathing, you know, there, there are a handful of those concepts. The real question is how do you get people to, one, accept their validity, and then two, actually implement them? And so much of that success in that regard is a function of the personality, of the mental skills trainer as opposed to the concepts themselves there has to be some motivation to adopt these things and usually that comes from somebody who is able to promote them and harvey had this incredible personality he was the most unlikely baseball coach he wasn't an athlete he didn't look like an athlete he was older than most athletes uh, but he had a personality that was absolutely magnetic and not just it wasn't really charismatic as much as it was entertaining um there's an old show on television that goes way back before your time and most of our listeners time called the phil silvers show it was about a army sergeant named named bilko and harvey was a an absolute identical twin to phil silvers and if, if uh, anybody's ever seen Phil Silver's in action. He was, he was a loud uh, sort of Brooklyn accent, personality, uh, <laughs> no shame whatsoever. He even wore a uniform. Harvey, Harvey wore an age uniform and uh, he looked completely out of place, but endearing <laughs> at the same time. It was just, he, you know, he had no shame. Uh, he was just an unbelievable personality. And to me, what it demonstrated was the importance of the right people in the right mm-hmm. positions but the reason we brought harvey in honestly was because of an attitude we had in the organization at that time was was simply look this seems like a good idea it looks like it could probably do us some good it might help us let's try it and being in an environment where risks are encouraged you know prudent risks mm-hmm. um, things that have a probability of have some possibility of success, you know, a willingness as part of the institution, or the organization to try them <clears throat> and not be afraid, not be risk averse to at least trying new ideas. I think that was the key to almost everything we did was a willingness to try it. If it didn't work out, okay, we shelved it, but we were none the worse for wear. That I think was one of the reasons why we, we tried so many things and and, Honestly, because the people working with me were so capable, the Harvey Dorfmans, the Carl Keels, et cetera, most of it worked out.
0: I think something that you shared with me during your interview in 2016, I wish I could remember the quote exactly, was something to the effect of, you know, if you ask yourself, does this make sense? And if the answer is yes, then you have to try it. So that's... To your point about what you just shared with Harvey and, you know, organizational reform. And I want to talk about Moneyball a bit more, because a big part of Moneyball centers around the Oakland Athletics embracing analytics over intuition to evaluate talent and make decisions regarding rosters, lineups, matchups, and more. And you were talking about this earlier, but I want to ask you, what are some of the limitations or pitfalls of an emphasis on performance data?
2: Well, what performance data allows you to do is identify efficient outcomes, more probable outcomes. I mean, it it doesn't get you to a point of accuracy, 100% accuracy. It really is a matter of estimating probabilities and putting yourself in the best position to succeed. But there's still a substantial part of the equation that is subjective in nature, and that's in part because not everything is measurable
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and if you're involving human beings, there is almost by definition some aspect of what's going on that will never be measurable because and not to say you know in, in a sort of in a cliche that you can't measure the human heart. it's just that not everything is predictable. Mm-hmm. The weather can change, uh, somebody can get sick, break a wrist. Uh, you know, the the possibilities are endless. So not everything can be reduced to an equation. Uh, And that's true in finance. It's true in everything. Just because you're doing analytics doesn't mean that everything is absolutely objective. When you do analytics, you analyze data. Some aspects of that data get weighed more heavily than others. Some are ignored. Some are emphasized. There are a lot of subjective decisions that are inherent in data analysis, but probably the most important thing, when it comes, certainly when it comes to baseball, is is the relationship of the individual player to the data. And this is an interesting aspect of the game today because a lot of what happens to players is dictated by front offices based on data and so forth. But ultimately, the person who has to interpret that data apply it to the players, and then convince the players that it's important information is the manager. Mm-hmm. And so the pivot point there is between the information and the players, the information and the human beings. And so even in a, in an analytical world, leadership is critically important because somebody still has to motivate the players because 20, 30% of what happens is not subject to data analysis
0: mm-hmm.
2: and somebody also has to take that other 70 percent of the equation the data and the information and educate the players as to why uh, it's important and why they sh- why it should have credibility and that's that's kind of the situation we're in today probably with too much emphasis on efficiency and probability and not enough on the unpredictability of human involvement
0: I have to be honest, I had high expectations for our conversation today, and your responses are exceeding all of my expectations, and they're very thought-provoking. And I have two more questions for you before we wrap up today. And um, I wanted to ask you about working with Billy Bean. Under your leadership, he transitioned from player to scout to the front office, where you surrendered the reins to the Oakland A's to him after training and preparing him to lead the club. 20 years later, you returned to Oakland to serve as a senior advisor. So what has it been like going back to the organization?
2: What's been interesting for me is two things. Number one, the organization still has people in it who were there when I was there 40 years ago. There's one person who's been with the A's for over 50 years, actually two close friends of mine. Um, But there are probably a dozen or so in key positions that are still with Oakland and were there when I left back in 1998. So that's really been uh, fun for me is reestablishing those old, uh, relationships or not reestablishing them, but renewing them on a daily basis. But also what's been beneficial is being able to bring all of my other experiences back to Oakland. Because while there's a certain amount of certain level of similarity uh, and continuity from when I was with Oakland before to the present, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of other things that have changed, not only in Oakland, but also what I've observed in other places. So what I've really liked is the dual aspects of the familiarity of of, uh, the organization with a lot of the people there that uh, still remain and the facilities, of course. And the new experience of seeing what they do differently, but also bringing what i've I've seen elsewhere back to Oakland, it's been very enjoyable in in uh, those two respects.
0: I wanted to ask what are some things that leaders can do to prepare those under their charge for increased responsibility?
2: Well, I think there are two or three things that are important. one mm-hmm. is and this goes back to more fundamentally sort of what I believe is important for leadership in any position because i think leadership is a, is a combination of professional competence and what i'll call personal excellence so if you're going to develop a leader you have that that vision of leadership then you know one has to has to develop both and so i think it's important for people to be professionally competent and that comes from continuing education. It comes from experience. It comes from sort of day-to-day involvement in things at a pretty detailed level. Personal excellence is a little more difficult uh, to quantify, but it really goes to all the personal qualities that are important for people to have credibility in their position. As I said, Professional competence is one of those things if you're not professionally competent people are not you're not going to have credibility as a leader but that's not enough you have to there are these personal qualities that are also important if you're going to sustain your position of you know authority and credibility over a period of time and that's has to do with you know integrity and mm-hmm. honesty and consistency all of those loyalty you know, a variety of different personal qualities. I think the other thing that's important is um, sort of understanding how decisions are made in the human brain and understanding our biases, understanding the system by which we reach conclusions mentally. So in developing these, these individuals, one, they have to be exposed to you know, professional development, continuing education. They have to be able to model the kind of conduct that you're promoting. And so they have to have, you know, a mentor or someone they can model that is demonstrating those qualities. And then, I, you know, I think they do have to understand how the mind works and the hidden biases that exist. Mm -hmm. So how do you promote all these things? Well, I think the best way to do it is to delegate, and delegate and delegate and supervise those delegated responsibilities, but making sure that people have opportunity to make decisions within a framework. When I was with Oakland initially, you know, as you know, minor league teams are all over the country, so it's not like you can supervise a minor league manager in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, from mm-hmm. Oakland unless you know you're on the phone for an hour every day. And so, basically, we had like three principles that guided their decision-making at these remote locations. Sort of like Marine Corps principles or Fire Department principles. Here are three or four principles that are pretty general They're not intended to be restrictive. They're kind of general.
1: Go make your decisions.
2: Go do it. Go manage. And if you, in our judgment, violate one of these things, we'll let you know and we'll learn from it. We'll move on. But perfection is not the standard by which we measure success or failure and that's that's one of the tough things about measuring success or failure what level of failure is acceptable given the importance of accepting risk personal growth etc there's some level of failure that is sort of inherent in the learning process and um uh, I think that's true with respect to leadership also.
0: Excellent, and I do love that example of minor league teams and having to manage remotely, especially right now, as many people are having to deal with managing scenes that they're not physically on, but they haven't experienced that before. So very timely. Lastly, many of our listeners are not only passionate about improving their own performance, but also enhancing the performance of their teams and organizations. And it is probably fair to say that this sort of endeavor is commonly met with resistance or ambivalence sometimes even in high performance teams. So given that there has been no bigger champion for optimal human performance in professional baseball, what are one or two pieces of advice or counsel that you have for leaders who are passionate about such endeavors in their industries?
2: I think the most important thing is for people to remember that bottom-up change is, is possible, that uh, you don't have to be the leader of an organization to affect change. I was at a uh, West Point leadership conference about two years ago. And it was a three- or four-day conference, and it was put on by the leadership department at West Point. There were various uh, guest speakers and panelists there, and one of the topics was bottom-up change. And the example that I used was leadership under fire, and the way in which Jason Bresler, who's been central to this effort uh, from the very beginning, was able to implement effectively bottom-up change at the New York Fire Department. Now, there has to be a willingness on the part of an organizational leadership to consider changes made from within the ranks. But to the extent that one feels strongly about those changes and passionate about them, I think the most important thing one can have is persistence but realizing that it's possible and having the persistence to pursue that change given given the possibility i think are, are, are very important
0: mr alderson thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and answer all of these questions and share so much knowledge and insight it really is something that i'm going to have to revisit over and over again in order to digest all of it so thank you very much
2: All right, thanks for the time. I really enjoyed it.
0: The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.